Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, newly banned from YouTube for a week for talking about a experimental vaccine. But that's another conversation. In this conversation, I speak with Aaron Kimberly and Jamie Reed about a host of topics, principally having to do with the medicalization of children under the auspices of gender affirmation care. We talk about the American Association of Pediatrics rethinking and possible retooling of their statement about gender affirming care, so-called. We also talk about Aaron and Jamie's LGBT Courage Coalition, which is a coalition of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender adults who are concerned with the current state of gender medicine for children, adolescents, and teenagers in the United States and Canada. Jamie Reed was working for a gender clinic, and she was a whistleblower, and just this week, she's gotten a lot of press around that. And Aaron Kimberly is the host of Transparency Podcast. They are both wonderful people. I learned a lot from this conversation. I will get out of the way. Without further ado, here is Jamie Reed and Aaron Kimberly. What's the hot topic? Well, I am still reeling from the news from the American Academy of Pediatrics yesterday that they are going to do, they're going to commission a systematic review of the evidence. They had been really digging their he heels in for so long and, and refusing to do that. So that's, that's a huge step. And I don't know exactly what prompted that step, but they're obviously feeling increased pressure. Oh, I have theories. <laughs> so <laughs> The paper you're talking about is from the American Academy of Pediatrics, yep. ensuring comprehensive care and support for transgender and gender diverse children and adolescents. The policy tells healthcare professionals, and I'm quoting here, that a strong non-judgmental partnership with youth and their families can facilitate exploration of complicated emotions and gender diverse expressions yeah. while allowing questions and concerns to be raised in a supportive environment. What does that mean in practice? <laughs> so the idea behind this is, um, you know, some of our previous assumptions around a binary, um, there's a, there was a previous assumption that um, in and of itself being gender diverse was a form of mental illness. You know, and so this is sort of moving beyond that to sort of say gender development is a normal part of development we all go through. We all experience gender. And for some kids and some individuals, it's more complex. Um, it's not necessarily the label that we give them. Their own internal identity, um, you know, is, is maybe different. And we need to sort of work with those individuals in a supportive, safe, non-judgmental environment to really allow them to engage into a process of discovery and exploration to, you know, to, to really realize, you know, who they are on the inside. And as they go through that, there's both Sometimes there's a lot of motivation, a lot of pride and joy. Sometimes there's a lot of questions, hesitation, um, you know, and, and we need to work through all the emotions. So it really is sort of creating a model where pediatricians can sit with a child or with, you know, and the whole family um, and understand both the concerns as well as some of the real excitement around discovering who you are and be part of that process with them. And it's through our modeling that hopefully, you know, as we advocate for in the paper, it's through our modeling that we hope to, you know, allow schools and whatnot to come in and understand and celebrate gender diversity as much as any other form of diversity. So five years ago, they put out this position paper. It was written by a doctor still in residency named Dr. Dr. Jason Rafferty. Um, it had been thoroughly torn apart after he had written it. It was not a systematic review of evidence. It was literally a position paper. 
And that is what based the entire American Academy of Pediatrics policy around gender affirming care, as they referred to it, for children and adolescents for the past five years. And every five years, they either have to choose to reaffirm a position paper, they can basically dump it, or they can let it expire. So they can say, this is no longer good. Yes, we're going to reaffirm it, or we can just quietly let it expire. I think because of the legislature and the bills going on in the United States, they could not quietly let it expire because it's upholding so many of these legal challenges. They clearly could also not refute it or say that they were not going to reaffirm it. So they had really no other choice but to reaffirm it at this point. So they reaffirmed it, but I just imagine, so there's 16 people who were in the room deciding this yesterday, and I imagine it was a very contentious conversation, and I think what they came up with was that they were going to reaffirm it and then request a systematic review of evidence. Of course, a true systematic review of evidence should be unbiased. It shouldn't be people working in the field or have a vested interest in the outcome. But I mean, there's always opportunities, right, for a systematic review to, to be political and, and biased. So it'll be interesting to see who they commission and how unbiased that will actually be. And they can also choose after that review is done, it can come back and what we know will potentially most likely come back is that there is very low quality evidence to support these interventions, but they can still decide to say these interventions should still occur, even with very low quality evidence, which is what the Endocrine Society decided to do back in 2017. Okay. And so if they did that in 2017, would they have revisited that in 2022 every five years or did the Endocrine Society dodge that? I believe that they do not have the same protocol kind of procedure that they have to do that on a five-year rolling basis. Okay. So on, on the, when we talk about the, what's happening on the gender front, especially gender med medicalization and especially gender medicalization of youth, trans kids or whatever that is, um, the argument kind of rests or the vector of the argument is that these all major political or all major professional organizations support this. And then when you scratch the surface or when you look at how they support it, they all kind of support it in a political way or the, the evidence isn't necessarily front and center. Or are there some really good, strong, evidence-based professional organizational papers that support gender affirming care or uh, the transition of minors even some of the major players like wpath seem to be releasing statements like acknowledging that the evidence is poor i've been seeing that more and more especially over the last couple of weeks where they're acknowledging the evidence is poor but then saying a lot of but statements like oh but our anecdotal evidence is that our patients are doing well even though they're we know they're not really tracking outcomes long term okay And I'll just add, when when people claim that there's this really long list of all of these medical orgs that support this, what all of those other orgs organizations are really doing is they really look to the three key players. And those are the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Endocrine Society, 
and then WPATH. And so I always envision this as kind of a three-legged stool with a house of playing cards that's built on top of it. And those three legs of that stool, if any one of them really starts to falter, then all of the rest tumbles down. So all of these other medical organizations are not the key players. They're not the ones who are making these decisions or making these protocol statements or policy statements. So when you see an agency or an organization like the AAP do what they did yesterday, and that was followed up a few months back their acting president actually made a statement that said gender affirming care means should mean that most most children and most adolescents are not receiving hormonal interventions or actual medical interventions. So when you see one of those legs kind of start to wobble, um, I think, in my opinion, the last leg standing is probably going to be WPATH. Um, it'll probably be the one that continues to try to function um, for as long as it can. But we're already seeing some countries who are basically saying even their guidelines, you know, are are not based on scientific evidence and are being kind of ignored. Okay. There's also a difference between organizations that regulate a practice and protect the public versus organizations that are representing the professionals. Okay, so regulation, protection, and then uh, professional organizations? Yeah, professional organizations are one that represent um, the people within that profession. So here in Canada, in nursing, for example, we have an association that represents the interests of nurses, and then we also have a regulating body, which is meant to protect the public. And I think this, this should fall within the realm of protecting the public and regulating practice. Whereas WPATH, I think it's fairly well known that the that the real function of WPATH standards of care, though it's it says it's a guidance for practice, really what it does is it protects clinicians from liability, which is why they did things like they removed the, the bottom age bracket because any clinician that wanted to work outside of that framework would then be liable. And so they, they removed specifics like that so that clinicians wouldn't be liable if they did something outside the box. Pretty sure the clinicians were already going outside of that bottom age, but this yeah. gave them a little bit more cover. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it just, it, it doesn't seem ethical that you have a, a body that protects the pro professionals, doesn't protect the, allows the, it allows the professionals to do whatever they feel is best. It gives them a, a, you know, some sort of protection, but that body itself doesn't have any accountability. Like nobody can sue WPATH, right? Nobody can sue the AAP. They would lose. What? What? Are, how do you pressure them? Um, it's all reputation, right? But because they've already claimed that they are the world association, they have this glamour of respectability. Um, they can't really lose it. Or you know, who who holds them accountable? Who sues them? That's the million dollar question, right? I mean, they're sort of self-professed experts in the field that everyone else is following. And people say, well, this is this is based on expert consensus and, and what what criteria makes someone a gender expert? It, you know, WPATH is setting its own standards 
and appointing themselves experts in this field. But I mean, they're they're not. It's a professional association, so they don't even have to be a medical professional to be a member of of WPATH. Anyone could be a member of WPATH, including activists. And there are some professional activists that. Well, in recent years, Jameson Green, for example, was the president of WPATH, who is a trans man and an activist. He has no medical background at all whatsoever. Okay. So, I mean, so there's Aaron, no justice. So there's no levers. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, but what you guys have been doing are people in your associations, the dissidents or the skeptics or people who are um, putting pressure on these things, like... What what are the vectors? How did you guys get involved in this? And then when you started to organize, like what is the what is the counterinsurgents or like how have you guys mapped out what to do in order to pressure these organizations to have some sort of accountability or to start to move toward evidence based care, maybe? So I'll start and then Aaron, you can sure. jump in. So the first thing I just want to recognize is that this has been this resistance this kind of movement has been going on way longer than i ever came into the picture in fact i was on the opposite side for probably a number of those years that you know even aaron um and your podcast aaron and aaron's podcast gender wider lens like all of these things have been going on for so many years longer. So I recognize that I am new on this playing field and in essence, I guess in theory have has switched sides. Um, really, I, I was someone working inside of a gender center. So I recognize that there are giants who have been working on this for so much longer than I have been. And I think Aaron, you're one of those. You stepped out and what's courageous and put your neck out there a lot, way longer than I have been out here. Um, but what we have recognized, I think, is a few key points. So one, um, it has been really hard to be publicly named and out there with your name and be courageous and talk about these issues without finding oneself canceled, fired, threatened. And so we were recognizing that that was a really big issue and concern. And we felt that if we were banded together, um, one of the things that we talked in length about is kind of our logo is this idea that if you have one single strand, one single string, you can cut that, break that, destroy that so much easier than you can if you braid something together or tie something together you just make a stronger um just a stronger thing that we can hold together and then not be easily as broken and a lot of that also has been about trying to build relationships so one of my biggest fears before i stepped out was i was afraid i was going to be alone that i was going to lose all of my friends and had to face this idea that I would be completely at this alone. And what I have found is almost the exact opposite is that so many people are 
brave and kind and courageous and actually have welcomed me with open arms. And so those are kind of the two big things. We knew we were stronger together and we also knew we wanted to form these connections to support one another. Yeah, it feels a little bit to me like a David and Goliath story, at least it, it did in the beginning. And I, I, my awakening, if I can call it that, I mean, it's similar to yours, Jamie, in that it came through the work that I was doing with trans-identified youth. And I went into it with the best of intentions to really help these youth. I, I'm a trans man myself. I understand what gender dysphoria is like. Um, and I was excited. And I think we were in the process of building some really strong services. And I was excited to see behind the curtain and, and understand a little more about, well, what is gender dysphoria and what is this like from a clinical perspective, not just the lived, ex lived ex um, perspective. And for me, it was a lot like the Wizard of Oz of looking behind the curtain and seeing this, you know, this crony little man you know, behind the curtain with a bunch of levers. There, I was alarmed by, <laughs> by the practices and, and how little evidence there seemed to be, how little sort of robust clinical evidence was even being discussed. It was a lot of very political speak behind the curtain and usually throwing out terms like, what do we do about the turfs and, and not really discussing gender dysphoria at all and being told, well, you shouldn't be asking about gender dysphoria because that's pathologizing. And it, the rationales were so circular and it wasn't making any sense to me. And that, that's a shift from how we were talking about these things. 20 years ago when I was in the process of transition, you know, in the, in the lesbian community, I knew a lot of very masculine women, butch lesbians who were talking about having gender identity disorder. That was part of our, that was part of the landscape in the gay and lesbian community. That was, and I think that was fairly well understood at that time. And a lot of lesbians and, and trans men were still dating one another and still a part of community. And that's really, I think, starting has been ripped apart in recent years. So I just became, I couldn't even articulate why I was so disturbed. I was just so confused by what I was hearing from behind that curtain and, and confused about why this culture had changed so much and alarmed that, uh, that what used to be a fairly fringe queer theory culture in the gay and lesbian community seems to have, be completely embedded in the fabric of how we're doing this work now from more of a political framework rather than a, a robust clinical framework. And it's taken me in two years to kind of unravel for myself, why am I so alarmed? And it's not a single thing. There's a lot of things that I'm alarmed about, but it felt very much like me against Goliath. I felt very alone in that and I had no idea that anyone else even was seeing things from my perspective and had a similar alarm. So I was really, when when Jamie blew the whistle and we saw that on the news, Aaron Terrell and I, you know, doing our podcast, we were just so excited because here's this queer woman married to a trans man who saw behind the curtain too and was seeing a similar sense of of. I don't even know what word you would use, Jamie, but it's, it is, I just ethical, keep going back to it. Ethical alarm. moral like, outrage? Yeah, perfectly put. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I feel like, you know, and, and we both went, entered into this work really caring about these kids and feeling like we're harming more than we're helping them. 
And I felt like, I, and you, I know you've used this word too, Jamie, and I, I don't use this word lightly, but I felt I had a moment of standing in my, in my bedroom and it just hit kind of this wave came across me. I felt like this is, I feel like I've been a, a part of a cult. And this very rigid cult-like way of thinking and the, the kind of punitive measures that are taken when you start to think for yourself and, and push back on any of that ideology. And, I, and that was sort of my oh shit moment. Like, how do you gracefully exit a cult and still care about these kids and do what's right for these kids? So it became very necessary, I think, to, to connect with others it's been so important just even for my own mental health but in tr but you know it, it, it's hard to get people to listen when they're immersed in this way of thinking the left just seems to follow this without question and i don't think anyone even knows where some of these ideas have come from it, it feels like they just kind of bubbled up out of nowhere and everyone's talking this 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 language of 100 genders and and where do these ideas even come from i don't think anyone can really even knows but we're but we're towing the line and it, it can be a very lonely experience to feel like you know your community is has now turned on you i mean people that i've known for years suddenly calling me a bigot um so it did become very necessary and that was why the gender dysphoria alliance originally came together there were trans men that circled around me because activists um were coming after me and threatening my career and threatening to get me fired and um that camaraderie i i yeah i can't even express how grateful i am for that and so when when jamie did come forward aaron terrell and i were both so excited that we we both emailed you not you knowing the other <laughs> not knowing the other was going to we were just so excited to meet you and get you on our podcast and and now here we are with with a, a new coalition So, Jamie, how did you end up working in a gender clinic? When's the first time you heard about a gender clinic? When did the gender clinics start start up? I know Zucker so, had one pretty early on oh, in yeah. Toronto, right? Um, and then um, GEMS opened in Boston. Um, that was directly modeled, and they learned directly from the Dutch. So... The center that I worked at is in St. Louis, Missouri, and it opened formally in 2017. However, um, that university and that children's hospital were treating pediatric patients previously to 2017. They just formally um, opened a center um, at that time. And I came to work there in 2018. Previous to that, I, I've always been in social work roles, which is slightly, it, it confuses some people because I get assumed that I am a licensed clinical social worker. I am not. Um, my undergrad is in cultural anthropology, and I have a master's in clinical research management. But um, I think that anthropologists don't have a lot of clear job opportunities. I don't know the last time a position was open for your local necessary anthropologist. So we tend to fall into a lot of those other social science, social kind of helping roles. Um, I've worked with foster youth before. I worked with youth who are HIV positive 
And I was working directly as a case manager for HIV positive youth when the position came open at the pediatric gender center and I applied for it. Um, a lot of things in my own background, I experienced a lot of gender dysphoria as a child. I even through my adolescence and into my young adulthood, I have identified in the community. I was identifying as a lesbian in high school. Um, and what I was doing, I was doing a lot of the work already with the HIV positive youth. So we saw a statistically higher portion of trans girls or trans women are HIV positive. So I was already interacting and working with a lot of trans identified people at that time when I applied. And I went into the, I went into the work really thinking I was going to be, I was going to be helping people. And so what was the position? It was a case manager. I was the or? case manager. I was the case okay. manager, but I also was doing towards the end, doing a lot of um, research studies and running a number of research studies. Okay. So I, I'm just wondering, because I've, I've interviewed a lot of detransitioners and especially over the last, what, five, 10 years, a lot of young people just go to the doctor, they get their medications, they get their, they get certified, they get rubber stamped. It doesn't seem like anybody's really, it seems like there's a lack of people building a full picture of this person who is seeking help and gender is one of the vectors. It just seems like they're sent to a gender clinic or they're sent to the in, endocrinologist. Nobody's there. So were you like building a full profile of the people that you, the young people that you were uh, helping when you were helping if you're a case manager, is there anybody in these gender clinics that's doing a full map of like all the different vectors of discomfort and, and psychological problems? No, but, um, one of the unique things about my role and the nurse that I worked with is that we were the two individuals within the center on the team who touched in the medical chart, almost all of the patients. So I had a really high up bird's eye view of all of the patients coming into the center. Whereas the providers were only seeing the specific patients that were referred directly to them for specific needs. Now our center was different in that. Some of these gender centers, pediatric centers, the way that they handle it is they schedule a first appointment and the patient sees everybody on the team in the first appointment. We were not doing that. So I was doing the phone triage to determine which providers the patients were going to see. Um, I think one of the, the criticisms of these centers is that there are way too many patients. They are completely under-resourced by the hospitals. Again, I'm sorry for my dogs. Um, they are totally understaffed and not given enough staffing resources. We're going to walk outside together. Okay. So. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
We so, also we're, so are they if if they are understaffed and underfunded? Why are they put together? Like, what's the reasoning for these hospitals to all, all of a sudden create a gender wing if they're not going to go all in? Is it just like a vector of like care or like a monetizable uh, opportunity? Like, how, on a structural level, how are these centers being established? Why are they being established, and then why are they not being fully staffed? Or why are they understaffed? Uh, very good questions. Um, so the center I worked at was started in essence the same way that the center at the Tavistock was started. So a parent activist reached out to a few of the individual doctors. So Mermaids was the parent activist group in England that basically was pushing a lot at Tavistock. <laughs> So at my center, there was a parent organization and a few specific parents who had heard about these treatments and were demanding these treatments for their kids. And so they came to the adolescent medicine doctors and were pushing for this center to be created and started. Um, and they kind of held some of the puppet strings all the way through and they, they still do. Um, so you see an activist bent right from the start in a lot of these places. And then what I also see is that there's a lot of these centers are run by younger doctors, doctors who are, have really embraced the ideology and the, the concepts around this and see this as their niche and this way of making, you know, a name for themselves. And also a lot of the providers in these centers and the staff in the centers are intentionally being hired from the community. And so, you know, I worked with a number of providers who were in some way represented from the LGBT community. Okay. Um, why they are under-resourced and understaffed. I think that that's one of the worst parts about this is because I do care about these kids. I care about kids who might be lesbian, gay, bisexual, might have gender issues. And it is another example where this community is basically being woefully underserved while at the same time, the hospitals can throw their rainbow flags out there and put some t-shirts out there for pride and they get some of the good buybacky kind of feeling that they are supporting this community while completely woefully underserving us. What's interesting about your experience is, is I was working. So there were differences in the setting that I was working. So I was work. I wasn't working in a gender clinic. I was working in a multidisciplinary clinic designed for youth from ages 12 to 25. So it was our common practice with any youth that came through the door. We wanted to be like a, like a portal to services to simplify access to services. So as many different services under one roof as possible and really working on system change to try to reduce barriers and reduce gaps in systems in gen in general. So across, you know, mental health and primary care and social services. So it was our common practice when any youth walked through the door or family that walked through the door to do a really good assessment 
we were collecting a lot of data on the first visit about these youth. They would complete um, a survey with hundreds of questions that asked about where are you living? What's your relationship? What are your relationships like? Are you going to school or not? So all these different areas of functioning with like sexual health, substance use, mental health, primary care. Um, and then based on that data and that initial conversation, being able to access all these different services under our roof or partnerships within the communities and designing really good whole person, whole system care plans, including supports for families, which when, you st when we started to train to do gender care, all that went out the window, like, because now we're being told, well, you're not supposed to assess these kids because that's, that's a barrier to providing service. So we were actually ironically being asked to do less for our trans patients than we were any of our other clients that walked through the door by not doing assessment. Cause now suddenly that's being seen as gatekeeping and oppressive. Okay. Well, so, so how, how does that, could you, could you, could, can you show me the reasoning, like a well-meaning doctor turning off their critical capacity for this one issue? Like, why does this shut people down? Like, this is gatekeeping. Like, don't, don't look. Like, what is the reasoning? And then is there like cognitive dissonance that starts poking up around that? Because it just seems like if you're a really smart person and you're trained to do all these whole system things, and then one thing comes along, like, what? What was it about you two that you're like, wait, hold on. And then everybody else is like, what do you, why, what's your problem here? Cause it seems like there's a hiccup there. For me, no, I think because if, yeah, it's going yeah, go ahead. No. Okay. okay. Um, I mean, for me, because I was, I was just working in general mental health. I wasn't, I was, I'm not a gender specialist. I was learning to do the work and I have, you know, my own personal experiences with the system 20 years ago, but I wasn't a gender specialist. So I was just still working within a clinical paradigm and had expectations of how we talk to one another as clinicians, how we talk about research, our, our, our relationship with evidence. So what the contrast for me was, you know, making that switching into this more gender role was they're operating out of a completely different paradigm. So the conversations that they're having are more activists speak about human rights and reducing barriers to care and that it and bodily autonomy and that it's it's your right as you know it's it's your human right to be able to identify however you want and it's never anyone's job to question that and they're supposed to just provide you whatever services you're asking for. So that is just a completely different paradigm that they're operating out of these clinicians thinking they're agents of a human rights movement they're not they're not thinking like clinicians anymore and, and yeah. the normal conventions of clinical practice are, are missing and that's where we run into very unsafe territory because we are providing clinical services we're still providing you know medications and surgeries and i mean do we want to start seeing hormones in vending machines because there's really no clinical role anymore to, yeah. you know, to draw from your clinical experience about mental health or developmental psychology, even just common sense. Sometimes sitting with these young people and some of the things they're saying, you kind of question, you know, do you are, are you really understanding what you're getting yourself into? And and some of them very clearly, you know, they had no history of gender dysphoria through their lives. And some of them even admitted that, no, I never had entered any yeah. gender dysphoria. And, and you're not supposed to, as a clinician, think critically about that. And 
ever interfere with whatever it is they want for them, their bodies and their lives. Okay. And I think all of that is part of why I found myself struggling is because I could not turn off my critical thinking brain. And in this care, if you slow down and look, you will find. And what you will find is that if you actually are going to follow even the bare minimum of the WPATH guidelines, if you slow down and look, you will find, and then you will find that a large group of these kids do not meet guidelines. And therefore, you will have to figure out a way to say no. And the doctors that I work with could not see a way to do that. And so doctors, okay, so if we, we look at a different but somewhat similar situation. So we added the pain scale in as one of the vital signs. So we're gonna, sorry, I'm gonna switch gears for a minute. So we started asking patients as a vital sign, what is your pain level? And we would show them this, you know, you if you've been in a hospital, if you've ever been in a hospital and been in pain, You've probably seen some goofy smiley chart that shows like a frowny person and then a smiling person. And it's like, where are you at in the pain scale? And you're supposed to give the nurse a a number, right? And so we have been slowly changing some of our medical practices in what was a well-intentioned effort to maybe center the patient more and give the patient some more of a say into their care but we had a situation then where patients were claiming that they were in high levels of pain and then the result is we give them opioids we give them medications and drugs so we saw this huge opioid epidemic because we created the pain scale we asked the questions we found this problem and then we started giving patients these drugs and then when we started to see this huge problem it got really, really hard for physicians to say no. So I know some emergency room physicians who they would try to tell a patient no, and then the patient would ask for a different doctor or go to a different place. Or it's really hard for doctors, I think, to directly say no to patients when patients are clear and requesting and and are specifically asking for something. And so what we saw in these gender centers is these patients would come in, these kids would come in and they are one track mind. It is, I want X. And what was so bizarre, sometimes the X that they wanted was totally clinically inappropriate. So I don't know how many kids would tell their parents, like 16 year old um, natal females would, who've been having a period since they were 12 would tell their parent they need a puberty blocker. And then the parent would call me and I'm doing an intake and the parent would say, well, they, they're demanding a puberty blocker. And I'm like, for what reason? They already, they've already completed puberty. Like puberty is over. They don't even know what they're asking for. They don't clinically, because patients are not supposed to be in the role where they're the ones making diagnostic determinations and self-prescribing. If that's yeah. how we want medicine to work, then why do we even have prescription pads anymore? Like it's, 
you don't even need it anymore. But that's kind of the setup in these gender clinics. Yeah. And I'm told that that's a shift in practice, like clinicians that have been doing this for, for many, many, many years. They said that's, that's a shift. I mean, it used to be patients would come in saying, I have gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder. What do I do about this? And now they come in, as you said, Jamie, they come in already having already diagnosed themselves, having already determined what it is they want. So there, there's really no role for clinician anymore. And I mean, we started the conversation talking about the weak mm. evidence for this approach. What we haven't talked about is how a lot of the um, the activist overstep into practice is actually directly contradicting some of the medical evidence about assistance rates, for example. I mean, how many of these families and young people, even if a kid did have lifelong persistent gender dysphoria from childhood, how many of these parents and families or these families or 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 individuals are being told how common it is for gay and lesbian people to experience that as children. I didn't know that when I transitioned. I knew there was some connection between sexual orientation and this experience because of the bunch of lesbians I was talking to, but nobody at any time explained to me what gender dysphoria is. And I think parents might and, and kids might make very different decisions if, with that information. If a you know a kid is experiencing this and they said you know what it, it, this is really common for gay and lesbian people to experience this as children and this is the trajectory most out most resolve that by adulthood yeah let's support you love you and wait and see they're not even being given that opportunity to know that and the opportunity to to become a gay or lesbian adult that yeah. to me is is one of my outrages and all that so all that desistance study work and it's not a single study i think there's what 13 different studies that on tracking that long-term trajectory they all say the same thing their their percentages are a little bit different because of their methodology but they the conclusions are all the same and there isn't a single study that contradicts that and yet the activists are pushing let's let's trend let's support a child's right to identify and legally change sex if they want to and legally access these these interventions as though that's their human right without ever even educating them about what gender dysphoria is and the likelihood that this is something that will resolve by the time they're an adult we again come to that just pernicious meme the trans kid wherever that came from it's such a powerful such a powerful term it's powerful, yeah, it's powerful activism, but it's activists have completely overstepped the boundaries into clinical practice in ways that we're, yeah. like I said, we're, we're, we're acting in clinical practice in complete opposition to what the evidence says. It's powerful, but it's also naive. It, the thing that's strange to me is I don't know how we've gotten to a point where we would intentionally desire any condition that would dictate lifelong medical treatment. I, I, I hear from activists things like, you know, we're saying that whatever cisgender is, is somehow better than transgender. And I don't even, I don't even think of it as that kind of a dichotomy. What I think is the the real question is, is it a preferred human condition to have the need for the least amount 
of sustained regular medical interventions or is the preferred human condition to require daily medications and increasing surgical care and just from a just from a parent and a human and a and someone who's worked in medicine for a long time i believe the desired human condition is to require the least amount of medical interventions at all times not just because of all of the known side effects but i you know i've read way too many zombie apocalypse books like wh- i don't i don't want to be stuck with this like pharmaceutical need every zombie movie has the parent <laughs> have to go into find the asthma inhaler for the kid at the pharmacy and that's where somebody ends up dead and i know i'm not trying to make light of this but it's like yeah i, I don't want to be tied to a pharmaceutical company if i don't have to be for the rest of my life and i don't know how that got lost in parenting is it because of adhd meds and i i don't know where that went catastrophically wrong well there's there's a there's a testosterone shortage about you know at least once a year where this top testosterone supplies are are backordered and we can't access it for periods of time and and the amount of panic that i see amongst trans men is like what i can't get my testosterone for a month and it, it is like a this dependency right on on a medical intervention yeah. yeah and it's part of a cultural shift where um and there's like deep religious roots too about the body being an afterthought and that the self or the will is central and and this whole transhumanism um kind of push that that's on a cultural level is really manifesting itself but the provider should have some sort sort of grounding in that that's a really good perspective jamie about like why isn't the body like what, what, what's our skill how do we how do we know what's more important uh, the 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 if you if we want autonomy if you want to be liberated in your gender identity but then you're chained to this medical industrial thing is that real liberation is 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 a uh, irreversible cosmetic surgery the human right is that a human right elective cosmetic is that a human right like the the terms it's so fuzzy it's so squishy and yet the moral the moral weight that is causing these professional organizations to go along with this to shut down critical thinking is is i guess maybe that's one vector uh that you guys have considered in kind of mounting resistance or or trying to introduce some some resistance to the path of w path is to say okay listen there's there's a moral there are ethical questions here and one of those is do we want to chain human beings to the medical industry for life is that the best outcome? Well, and then on a and then on a social, cultural kind of community basis, I would strongly advocate for the ability for individuals to be as gender non-conforming as they want to in society through clothing, through hair, through dress, through all of these things. Um, and society if there's going to be an area to make a change, I wanted to see it on the societal level. I wanted to see there be more fluidity in gender presentation and gender um, exploration from society instead of the individual body having to be the one. It just feels like we are going at this backwards. 
Yeah, you know, I'm not, and I'm not just to to be clear on my position. Like, I'm not an abolitionist of completely, you know, shutting down all medical interventions for gender dysphoria. But I agree that in, we've put so many resources into that medical pathway, and really aren't talking anymore. Like you say, Jamie, about you know what do we need to do at a societal level um, to prevent gender dysphoria from maybe occurring in the first place? Because there is, there, you know, there is some evidence, you know, in, in research being done on homosexual presentations in other cultures around the world, like like Samoa or areas of Mexico, where there is a third gender presentation where gender nonconformity is is better integrated into society and in those societies they gender dysphoria is almost non-existent you know there's very highly gender nonconforming gay and lesbian individuals who are, are expressing that in an authentic way within their cultures and don't feel a desire to literally be the opposite sex or to medicalize their bodies. In Samoa, it's very uncommon for anyone to medicalize. And we're not, so yeah, we're not putting any resources into looking at like what changes maybe maybe we need to advocate for to better integrate that dimension of homosexuality that I think our culture has done very, very poorly. We like to look at all these other countries like Samoa or Asia and say, well, aren't those countries backwards? And I think we see gender nonconformity as as a pathology in our culture. And I think that's the mistake that was made psychotherapeutically working with, mm. with these kids in the past is we saw the gender nonconformity as part of the gender dysphoria rather than seeing that as, a, as an organic aspect of sexual orientation. So in our culture, we've integrated homosexuality but we haven't integrated gender nonconformity, and in other other places in the world, you know, I think my understanding is in Samoa they've done a, a really good job of integrating gender nonconformity, but but not the homosexuality aspect. The actual mm-hmm. sexuality part of it is still taboo there, but the gender nonconformity is just commonplace there. And so, I'm what, just building off what you said, Jamie, like you know, why aren't we looking at that societal? Peace. Or why aren't we using testosterone to masculinize effeminate boys and estrogen to feminize uh, masculine? What, why try to change sex? If we're going to do a medical intervention around gender nonconformity, why not push males to be more masculine and females to be more feminine? Like that, that's like conversion therapy, right? Like that, but the uh, other way around, isn't it? Mostly because the hormones don't work like, like that which is kind of interesting, but um, so, so, so even in, um, so these synthetic hormones like testosterone, estrogen, spironolactone, and biclutamide, all these drugs that are being given in a cross-sex manner, um, they did initially try to give testosterone to- Sissy boys. Effeminate. Gay that was the term they were using. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Yes, and so it didn't. It doesn't do that. What you would think the hormone does doesn't do its intended thing. Even, um, you know, we even had to counsel some of the patients who were on testosterone who would intentionally overdose, thinking that they would get faster or greater masculinizing results. And we had to counsel them because at a certain point, if you 
give your body too much testosterone, the body's actually going to go, wait a minute, I don't understand what's going on. And it's actually going to convert it into estrogen itself. And so you're going to get the opposite result. So anytime you're using these synthetic external hormones, I, I think we're still, we still don't even have, I mean, the ability to even use these, um, is still kind of in its infancy and in what they can actually like what they do. I do. I still think we do talk about how we don't really know the long, long term effects. Like we don't, we don't know what this is going to do to your body after 60 years on, we have so few patients. Um, and part of the brilliance, I think in Bob Ostertag's book and his thinking about this is, that it really was one of those first steps into these body modifications on these levels that we hadn't, you know, we don't even fully understand what we're, what we've started with these things. And the fact that then we're doing that to children is very hard to kind of wrap my head around. And either way, we're still medicalizing homosexuality. It's still, you know, the, the underpinnings of it either way is, is, is homophobia and the yeah. discomfort with the gender nonconformity aspect or dimension of homosexuality. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, would you, it's that term, would you rather have a, a living daughter or a dead son is actually hiding, would you rather have a, a straight daughter or a gay son in, in certain mm -hmm. respects, right? And that's not even to mention the the number of straight girls that are getting swapped up in this. I guess ROGD is one term, and Lisa Littman's paper is actually almost five years uh, old, actually, um, in a couple weeks here. But, you know, like Chloe Cole and a couple other, a few, a number of different detransitioners that I've spoken to, the sexuality, they were not, they were never lesbian. You know, they, they had problems with their femininity. Um, you know, there's a... Uh, and then they somehow got swept up in this gender thing. So it's not just, we're, we're medicalizing not just sexuality, but I guess all forms of sexuality. Um, like in the case of AGP or autogynephilic males too, we're medicalizing that. Um, I guess that's what we have to do. So how does, how does the, how do we walk back? How do we, do we allow these professional organizations a way to like slowly walk back? Do we just kind of, do you guys think just pressuring them enough and watching that, that uh, tripod that you were saying kind of slowly get less or do we burn it all down? Like what, what's the proper ethical way of. <laughs> Sorry. I'm laughing at my own youth. I'm imagining if you asked me this question when I was like 19, I would be like overthrow the government. Burn it all down. <laughs> like, um, me, yeah. I mean, I still have a giant anarchy tattoo on my leg, so don't ever mention burning it all down. To the former anarchist. You activate you? Is that your like trigger yes. word? Uh, like, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I think we. Um, I think there's so much at risk, though. Here, this is not just okay. the risk. Is not just um, do we topple the the stool? We are facing a backlash in we're facing a backlash to all of us in the LGBT community. And so part of what I really struggle with is things like Matt Walsh puts out, you know, this interesting documentary, What is a Woman? And he hits on so many points where I'm like, yes, I agree with you on the medicalization of kids. But I do believe at the end of the day, Matt Walsh 
she probably doesn't think that I should have the right to legally marry. So I think that I don't, what I don't want to see happen to the community is that we stretch out this rubber band and we stretched it out so far in this direction where we're, we're arguing about biological reality and, and, and things that I never would have imagined we'd be arguing about. And if we stretch it to such a breaking point, it's going to snap back and it's going to snap really hard back in the other direction. And so what I really hope that we have some element of helping is there to be a soft landing. So yes, I am, I'm willing to concede, let them have some ways to softly walk this back. Let these organizations in some way, maybe save some face and maybe use this as a learning tool that next time something new like this comes around and involves kids and adolescents, we, we maybe take a little bit harder look. Um, and I'm still like a, a goofy, hardcore liberal. Like I would love to see one of the outcomes of this is we get universal healthcare in the United States, like our, our friends in Canada and Europe. And because part of why I see Europe has shifted this a little bit faster is they have universal systems of healthcare where they can do systematic reviews faster. And the system itself um, will put brakes on because they don't want to keep paying for something as a system if what they're paying for is not evidence-based. Is that the, is that how it's shaking out in Canada though? I mean, if we're going to no, be like Canada. Being, so. We've got our Canada's own problems having, here in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> what specifically is Canada's problem? Why are you guys, why are you killing homeless people? Like what the hell is going on up there? Canada, we're... speak for all of Canada. <laughs> I want to hold don't. somebody to account, and you can't just say sorry. That's not enough. <laughs> I don't know how this happened in, in Canada. I mean, we have a very... Um, we have a liberal government right now, but so does so does the United States. So I can't really even blame that. But yeah, what's happening in Canada is its own sort of can of worms you know the way our government is really controlling what we're allowed to think and what we are allowed to see so i mean they're now banning um news yeah. on, on the internet and and talking about removing networks like fox news from our cable systems and really cracking down on what we're allowed to to you know what information we have access to so i mean canada's become a very bizarre um hmm. very bizarre state but yeah, I mean, as far as like being able to walk back, I mean, the problem is so much trust has been lost. I mean, I think that's where there's there's an aspect of me too, is it wants to, to burn it down because it it. it so mm. I agree with you, Jamie. I mean, I have to kind of rein in that impulse, but so much trust has been lost in these clinicians, in our healthcare system, in our governments, in our educational system, in the LGBT. I mean, we built civil rights for the LGBT on promises, you know, that our inclusion wouldn't threaten the fabric of society, that we weren't trying to recruit people's children. And a lot of loss, a lot of trust has been lost because we've broken a lot of those promises because of these, these ideologies. Hmm. So it's going to be hard to walk that back and rebuild the trust. And, you know, it's going to take a major paradigm shift to do that. 
meanwhile, like, you know, I feel this sense of urgency because I think so many young people are being damaged by this. So I would like to see at least a temporary, put it all on pause. Let's get a handle on this. Block the blockers. And, and, and yeah, design a system that yeah. we can all feel confident with. Inject Lupron right into the professional organizations. Just stop their growth. Well, Aaron, I love, and I think we've all kind of been circling around this word moratorium. Um, one of the things that brought us as a coalition together was when we first started meeting, we knew we wanted to hang out. We liked each other. We wanted to support one another in our individual work because so many in this coalition are doing amazing like things. Like I, I feel so honored to like even be friends with people who are like, I'm almost finished with my book that's going to be like widely published. I mean, those things just are amazing to me. Um, but what we did agree on is that like at the at the core is that the way that children and adolescents are being medicalized right now needs to stop. And that a moratorium, a pause, a stop is what is really indicated and necessary. And I don't, I don't want to be dramatic, but I feel like every day this is continuing is another day that another kid is getting Lupron is getting a puberty blocker implanted in their arm. Another kid is starting testosterone. Um, another kid is having surgery. And, and there is an urgency to that. But there's also this long-term hope that we can have true LGBT organizations and camaraderie and community that respects freedom of speech and individualized beliefs. And part of where this all went wrong is these organizations, I don't think had centered that acknowledgement of differences within our community from the start. I think that they were all based in this concept that everybody is liberal and radical and wants X and, and never really worried or cared about really looking at our community as a, as a whole. And so then we get into this situation where I believe there are so many lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender individuals who do question medicalizing kids right now, who don't have an organization who speaks for them or is even willing to let them speak at all. I have tried to meet with some of these organizations and they literally will not even have coffee with me because they've determined that this is this is the only pathway and it's ground zero and if you don't agree with this then we can't even have a conversation it, it just how do you how do you reverse fanaticism and how do you how do you, how do you purge zealotry from I mean, it's not just, it's not just the hospitals that are using this increasingly convoluted flag, um, to, to, to signal one thing and say another thing, like the, the gays and lesbians are being used as cannon fodder, right? Like if you, if you do, if you're this, you're homophobic, right? If you're, if you're that, you're transphobic. It's just the whole, the whole thing. So it's just separating, separating that out and decreasing the, um, relevance of the people who are pushing things too far. 
and then increasing the relevance of the people who are reasonable and who are community builders and advocates yeah. and, and people who can reach out. And... There are a number of things I think holding back change. I mean, one is just, I think, the disbelief that how could, how did this happen? Like how on such a large scale where entire nations and institutions have bought into this ideology. So it all, it almost, I think, for people, when you start speaking against the ideology and, and try to just explain what's happened, and I'm old enough to remember, right, this this unfolding and, and what life was like before we thought this way, but it's captured institutions at such a large scale level that it almost sounds conspiracy theory-ish, right, to, to, to speak against it. So there's there's that. It's just this it's just it's so enormous that it's hard for people to believe that how could we how could we possibly have gone so wrong? Um and the other the other aspect is is this illusion that that we're all somehow in on it, that the entire LGBT is is in solidarity on this. And that's something that I've heard from from politicians that I've spoken to, you know, left leaning politicians who want to support the LGBT and want the LGBT vote. And so we're wanting, willing to go along with whatever they think the LGBT wants and are, and we're being represented by people that we didn't elect into these positions and these organizations like GLAD or, um, so they're representing us and, but actively silencing dissent from, from within the ranks. So to say these things within LGBT organizations, you just get ousted. So, and I don't think people who are trying to support and be our allies realize the extent of the internal toxicity and bullying that has led to this moment of, of silencing what I think is probably the majority. Hmm. But then the, then the damage that's been done, I mean, when you have people that have built their careers on this or parents who have transitioned their children, I can't imagine the cognitive dissonance or the or this the, the sense of shame or 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 regret or dread i mean i can't imagine what a parent would feel like to realize they've been duped and that they transitioned their child and potentially did harm to their child i, I can't imagine what that would feel like and how awful that would feel so i think that there's a lot of ego guarding in this right to to it to start to think that maybe what you've been taught to believe is wrong means you have to face some really difficult, devastating feelings. And I, I think some people, I think, are going to toe this line right to the end because they can't face that. So one of the things I've been thinking about more recently is when did our culture kind of allow this shift where the youth and the youth ideas, you know, if you're not a radical and you're not out there as a teen, like, you know, are you kind of doing teenage dumb wrong, right? But it used to be that the adults recognized youth culture for what it is. And I at least remember being an adolescent and a young adult. And I never really thought that the adults necessarily were taking us seriously or that we were actually in charge or the ones making the decisions. And something has happened where we have turned into being youth and child led instead of 
youth and child centered. So like I've said, I'm a parent, I've got a ton of kids. Anybody who knows me knows my life is kind of kid centered, you know, everything, all of our extracurricular activities, everything is child centered. We're constantly teaching kids and interacting with kids. But I hope that as a as a household, we haven't turned the reins over to the kids. And I just keep getting this weird sense that something about this confluence of social media and this huge, like, cultural, like, belief in, like, in youth and children and this, like, idea that they can never be wrong and, like, all of these glorifications of this have turned us into a child-led culture. And Mm. children make bad decisions. And if I was in charge at 19 or 20, I would have made really, really bad decisions for all of us. And I just hope that there is kind of some way that we, as the adults, slowly claw back some of the adults in the room are making the decision, not the Uh kids. Yeah, there's a reason why they don't diagnose um, children with personality disorders, because it, that behavior for children is just is is normal, right? I mean, the lack of limits and the strong feelings and um, but that's but, you know, things like personality disorders or developmental disabilities is another layer on top of that, where a certain amount of containment is therapeutic. And we've created this culture where we think, well, containment is a violation of your human rights. Very childish. So what what steps are you guys willing to admit that you're involved in taking? What, <laughs> what, what are, I know you guys are underground in some respects, but above ground in other respects. So what, what are some of the fronts that are being advanced right now? And especially to give people a sense that there is movement, um, that that things are, are changing, that there is actual pushback that's occurring. and Because and, I know there is, but people outside of this discussion don't necessarily know that there is an organized uh, and very serious and very uh, high level critiques that are going on and being advanced. So I think what we have been public and clear about is that we, um, we launched a sub stack right at the end of this year's pride. Um, we. we are, we. we so is that your yes. acronym we we no there ever i have had i did see one comment in a Substack posting and was like who is this mythical we um <laughs> there is actually more than just aaron and i there's actually okay. a number of lesbian gay bisexual and transgender individuals who are working together we are in contact with one another on a daily basis we are working right now on what we we launched with was this kind of concept that we wanted to try to open up a safe space for some dialogue within the LGBT for the 365 days from the end of this year's pride till next year's pride. So what we are actively seeking is we are actively seeking submissions to that sub stack. So we want it to be a place where the LGBT can have a dialogue that is not is not 
free speech limited. And we are really hoping that we have more submissions and more engagement. And I am so impressed by some of the individuals who have already submitted and reached out and then have on the back side joined us. Um, I think we're also looking to inspire more courage. And so I've also been really impressed and excited that we have been having some individuals reach out to us potentially in other similar situations that Aaron and I had found ourselves in our workplace and are reaching out to us to figure out ways that they could potentially do similar things. I hope that was vague enough. So you can Is just there, cough and I say just, like more whistleblowers like under your yeah. your voice. Yeah, if you want. But. Just for just for branding purposes, like who is this we? What do you call yourselves? Oh, the, the LGBT Courage Coalition. Okay. And I think we made a couple of intentional decisions with the name. So we stopped it at the T. Um, yeah. I, I, I was in a training last night for something completely unrelated. And I heard the trainer stumble over the phrase LGBT 2S. I think is where it's at now. I I left the work, so um, we we stopped it at the T, but we also included the T, and we've gotten pushback for both of those things, which I think it's important to be able to have that dialogue. I uh, purposely I want to work with trans adults. I don't want to be exclusionary to trans adults. And I think that trans adults probably have some of the greatest insight to help us with this because they have the experiences, they have the medical experiences, they know so much. And, and the thing is, is that trans adults are not going away. And I would never want to see trans adults be limited in their access to society or go away in any way. Sorry, that's just, it's a mo it's slightly emotional. It's a hard, it's a hard thing. Um, because it's hard to know that some of the things I've been attacked with after blowing the whistle was specifically that, that I somehow am trying to erase trans people or or want to see people not have access to care that they see fit as an adult. So we've included that. And I think that that was a really important decision on our part. Aaron, you should talk because now I'm we're, we're also trying, you know, because there are a number of different organizations and a number of different opinions about this. There are already organizations like the LGB Alliance or you know, organizations, organizations like them that have dropped the T. So they're they're already representing that angle. There's already, I mean, we all know there's already the long, um, the long list of of letters from the alphabet on the other side. And I think what what 
what we're trying to do is engage the left, right? We're trying to have this dialogue with the LGBT community and trying to take a position in the middle of not being a burn it all down, you know, let's completely cut ties with everyone else and not, but also not buying into what the mainstream LGBT plus has become. And so we're trying to find that middle ground of engaging the left in this conversation because they're the ones that that are pushing this sometimes blindly and need to be engaged in the conversation i think the i think the right is well aware that Mm. something horrible has gone wrong on the left but it's it's the left that's not really digging deeper and scratching the surface and thinking critically about this so i think we would automatically alienate the left if we started using language like you know drop the t or you know, I think I think it, it, blinders would immediately mm. go up, and, and we would be dismissed yeah. as as far right bigots. Well, I mean, even even drawing the line between T and Q and S and plus is already asking a whole lot because the left is for unbound emancipation. It's for un, it's it's now all in on on equalization of everybody and and unbound emancipation, whatever that means. So, I mean, it's, it's an uphill battle. But if you can get the people in the middle the people that are left-leaning or who at least the professionals at least these well-meaning soft-hearted libby professionals like julia mason you know she's on she's on your side you know on the, the these really open-hearted people to say hold on don't open your heart so much that all the blood pumps out you know on, on the wrong on the wrong side of history right is but but as a functioning democracy isn't the place i think sometimes the best outcomes for for functioning as a society is that both sides the conservatives the liberals the middle all kind of have an equal say and voice at the table and so i think the the best way out of this is probably hopefully somewhere slightly lefty, but in that middle. And so, Hmm. you know, where I would love to see all of this land is a a political situation where gay and lesbian and bisexual marriages, the ability to adopt children, the ability to have jobs, to function in society is not tarnished or taken away in any way. And that trans adults are also fully grounded in those same rights. I think that there should be policies and limitations where trans adults, adults who have had some psychotherapeutic supports have the right to medically transition. Now, is that fully covered by insurance? Is that something where there's some level of self-pay? Is there acknowledgement that there's some cosmetic aspects? that can still be to me those are questions that can be flushed out and still considered um but i i would love to see kind of a landing in this zone or area i i also think that there should be some landing where kids potentially under pubertal ages should be able to participate in sports and once we have pubertal changes, we can still have a protected class where women can participate in sports that are protected and safe and have an open category for individuals who, once we see pubertal changes, 
can have an open category for participation. I still want to see people be able to participate in sports. I think there's a middle ground where women can still have a protected class. And I'll even go out there and say, in regards to things like bathrooms, locker rooms, um, I I know we haven't really gotten into this, Aaron. So hopefully I'm not going out on a on a limb and you're like, oh, Jamie's out there. But <laughs> I really, um, I think the bathroom situation in the United States is totally dysfunctional and broken, period. Aaron and I both got to spend some time in Finland and I found myself taking pictures of bathrooms like, <laughs> like all the time because they are already gender neutral. There's plenty of them. I was raised as a woman. I don't know if you've ever gone to like a baseball game and the bathroom line for the women's restroom is snaking down the hall and around the corner and the men's room is an in and out quick thing because if you actually equitably built bathrooms, there should be two to one. There should be two bathrooms built for every one bathroom for women built for every one man male bathroom. You know, so I'm fully in support of, yeah, we can universalize single stall restrooms. They should have a sink inside of them. Um, there are ways to have a more welcoming and engaged society. I also think single stall bathrooms help parents. I can't go in with my five-year-old who has some developmental delays, but yet I'm dragging him into the women's bathroom. I mean, there's so many layers to this. But if we could tone down the hate and the anger and the name calling and actually just have some of these conversations across all of these spectrums, I think there are middle grounds that are reasonable accommodations for everyone that will support our society functioning for everybody moving forward. And I'll throw in there, I still think there should be a stop and a moratorium on children accessing puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones and surgery. Okay, I'll step down off my... Well, well said. I, I don't disagree box. with anything you said. You know, I see this as, I mean, as someone living, you know, a trans adult experience, I see it as it is a legal fiction. I, I've never believed I've literally changed sex. I, I think I saw it more as like a, almost like a metaphorical space that just allowed some social integration for mm. extreme gender nonconformity. And I think when you think of it that way, there's room for us to advocate for ourselves as okay as you know to negotiate this legal fiction but that legal fiction still needs to take into account biological sex right so we've we've elim eliminated our ability to to really meaningfully negotiate what that legal fiction should look like by by just by adopting this belief that a trans woman is just a woman and a trans man is just a man. Where is now the space? And that's probably by design. Where is the space now to negotiate where sex does matter? It, you know, it, it doesn't. So that whole conversation is being shut down and being framed as bigoted. You know, but I think if we rein this back into this is a legal fiction that is granted to some people who have been screened, who you know, has been demonstrated that that they would benefit from this legal fiction, I will defend, you know, that a, a trans adults right if they were struggling with gender dysphoria and it does seem like this is the best path forward. I've seen enough people benefit from this that I, I'm, I'm not willing to throw that under the bus, but we need to rein it back to understanding this is a legal fiction, that we haven't literally changed sex. I'm not a completely different species as the, as the butch lesbian who chose not to medicalize. 
Mm. That's complete nonsense. So, mm. but I've been granted this legal fiction. I'm grateful for the legal fiction. I will defend it, but of course we have to factor in biological sex and where that matters. And, and that should be evidence-based too, right? Because I'm not willing to just concede to pearl clutchers you know, but so I, I want to, you know, it's not just about feelings, you know, either on the trans side or, or on the hater side, but where's the evidence? So there's, I mean, I think that we have reasonable evidence that biological males are at a, dis, at a have an advantage physically over women in sports. I mean, I think that's grounded in reality and, and evidence. So where there's evidence that someone is being harmed or is compromised or it's unfair to someone, then then we have to we have to prioritize that evidence of where biological sex matters. And Aaron, I will always stand by your side and the right for any other trans adult to, to have those rights. But I also know that it is a harm to trans adults to ignore biological reality. And when we see medical charts that have no indication of natal sex, patients will be harmed. Mm -hmm. when, we, when we try to treat a physical body as if it doesn't have a natal sex, you will see poor medical outcomes. You will see differential diagnoses that miss entire categories of illnesses if we don't acknowledge that so so i think the way that you phrase that is is so succinct and so right to that point that i just hope i just beg moving forward that people can be open to this dialogue and recognize that there are many of us who are not bigoted hateful jokes it's not just bigots versus groomers, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. Absolutely, it's not. And we're here. And if you want to join in this dialogue with us, um, send us a submission. Write an essay. Tell us your story. Um, heck, we're going to publish a poem in a week and a half. So, you know, send us your writings on this and know that there are other people out there who are trying to have this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I really believe, I believe in people. I believe most people are reasonable. Most people want to get this right and do the right thing. I think most people are naturally somewhere in the middle and, and something has gone horribly wrong in our society that's, that's ripping that fabric of our society apart into these two extreme poles. But I, I do believe when it comes right down to it, most people most people are, are good and decent. And, and the reality is we live in an increasingly pluralistic society. We're not going to all agree on these things. And at the end of the day, we have to still be neighbors and still function as a society and, and work alongside one another in workplaces, even though we don't agree on these things. I don't know where we got it into our mind that we have to, you know, fight, you know, to tooth and nail for everyone else to go along with what we believe. I, I hope you can um, tell that to your prime minister. I hope so too. I hope we can get rid of our, rid of our prime minister soon. <laughs> Is he getting divorced? Did I see that? That was yeah, yeah. It was just announced they are separating. Okay. 
That was sad. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you both very much for joining me. And uh, it's great to meet you, Jamie. It's been great to have you back on, uh, Aaron. And uh, it's great to hear about your projects. You guys are involved in so many other things that we didn't touch and stuff, but there is a lot going on. There's a lot of very smart, very hardworking people behind the scenes making making um, alternative pathways available um, for the medical professionals um, and you know your personal experiences with these systems and understanding that a little bit better is a part of the puzzle but ultimately you guys seem like you just want dialogue and and uh, and to build coalitions of, of reasonable open people which is the other another major ingredient to this whole conversation and discourse to move it forward well, thanks so much for, thanks for, for hosting us. the conversation. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. And I'll end it there. <laughs>